This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. William Lane Craig, who's visiting scholar of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. Uh, Bill founded an organization called Reasonable Faith and is widely known not only as a philosopher, but as a Christian theologian and apologist. He's written on many issues in philosophy, uh, but most pertinent to our conversation today is his influential work in defense of Molinism, which we'll talk more about in just a minute. Uh, he's the author of The Only Wise God, The Compatibility of Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom, published by Baker in 1987. And he defends the Molinist position in Divine Foreknowledge, Four Views, uh, published by InterVarsity Press in 2001. Uh, there are many other publications that I could mention, but uh, those are a good place to start for those interested in today's topic. And uh, more resources are available at the Reasonable Faith website. Well, thanks for talking with us today, Bill. Uh, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, how you came to be interested in working on issues related to free will in particular? Well, I became a Christian uh, my junior year in high school. And for me, this was revolutionary. It turned my life upside down. And it seemed to me that if Christianity were really the truth, that I could do nothing less than devote my entire life to spreading this message among mankind. Uh, and so I felt immediately called to full-time vocational Christian ministry. And as I pursued my education, the vision began to congeal of presenting the gospel in the context of giving an intellectual defense of the Christian worldview. And so I pursued doctorates in philosophy and in theology in England and Germany uh, before beginning my teaching career. I've been aided in my ministry by my wife, Jan, who has been uh, the wind beneath my wings all of these years. Uh, and then about 10, 11 years ago, we founded uh, Reasonable Faith that you mentioned to attempt to give a, an articulate, intelligent, and uncompromising, but gracious um, Christian perspective on issues in the public square. And the Lord has blessed this ministry far beyond what we uh, could have expected. And uh, I'm currently engaged in writing a systematic philosophical theology based upon my career's work. Um, in terms of free will, I have to confess that I'm not particularly interested in the topic of free will. Rather, as someone who is broadly Wesleyan in his theology, I just assume that free will is true. Uh, I think it's biblical. Um, indeed, I think it's essential to having uh, a meaningful life and moral agency. Uh, if there isn't free will, then I think we might as well all just become farmers and quit thinking <laughs> about these things uh, and just live off the land. There's no reason or purpose to do anything. So for me, um, Libertarian freedom is simply an indispensable presupposition of, of my work. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the view that we're talking about today is called Molinism, which is named after the 16th century Jesuit theologian Louis de Molina. And it involves something called middle knowledge. So could you start off by telling us, is there anything about Molina as the person that we should know? 
and then introduce this idea of middle knowledge? I think it's worth knowing that Molina was a Catholic counter-reformer, and he understood the central teaching of Calvin and Luther to involve a denial of human libertarian freedom. He understood their view to so emphasize divine sovereignty that human freedom and hence moral responsibility was annihilated. And so Molina's burden was to articulate a view of divine sovereignty and human freedom, which would allow us to affirm fully both of those biblical doctrines um, in a coherent way. And so that was the central task Molina set for himself. And he, he went through an incredible amount of stress for having done this. He was uh, investigated by the Inquisition. His life was under threat for many years. He, he could be uh, executed uh, had the Pope found against his views, but um, the Pope never did condemn Molinism, finally said that uh, Molinism is a, a legitimate alternative for Catholic theologians to adopt. And so Molina was in that sense exonerated, but he did live courageously under tremendous stress for several years. So middle, middle knowledge is between two different kinds of knowledge, right? So could you explain a little bit about the, the two kinds of knowledge on either end and what middle knowledge is supposed to, to do in between yeah. those two? Molina distinguished between God's natural knowledge and God's free knowledge. God's natural knowledge um, is comprised of all necessary truths, and these are independent of God's will. They are explanatorily prior to God's decree to create a certain world. Um, and so God, prior to his decree to create a world, knew the whole range of possible worlds that he could create. This was known to him by his natural knowledge. This kind of knowledge is essential to God. His free knowledge, on the other hand, is God's knowledge of the actual world. After God makes a decree to actualize a certain possible world, then he knows the contents of that world that he has decreed, its past, its present, and also its future. And this kind of knowledge is not essential to God because it is dependent upon his free decree or choice of a world to actualize. So that would be his natural knowledge and his free knowledge. Great. Could you say a little bit about what sets middle knowledge apart from the natural and the free knowledge that God has? Yeah. Middle knowledge is so named because it comes in between the other two. Uh, it's called scientia media or middle knowledge because it's in the middle. And this is God's knowledge of what free creatures would freely do uh, in any circumstances in which God might create them. So, for example, he knew what you would have done if you had been the Roman procurator of Judea in the first century in the place of Pontius 
Pilate. He knows what you would have done if you had been one of the 12 disciples. Uh, would you have deserted and denied Jesus or remained faithful? God knows what you would have freely done. And this kind of knowledge is also thought to be explanatorily prior to his creative decree of a world. Prior to his choosing a world, God knew the maximal orders of things that he could create um, involving what creatures would freely do if they were in these various circumstances. Now, this kind of knowledge is contingent. It's not like natural knowledge because creatures could freely choose to do differently. So the truths that he knows via his middle knowledge are not essential to God in the way that the truths known by natural knowledge are. It's essential that God have this kind of knowledge, but its content could have been uh, entirely different depending on how creatures would freely choose. Nevertheless, this knowledge is explanatorily prior to God's creative decree. God does not decree what creatures would freely do in various circumstances. Rather, this knowledge is had by God logically prior to his creative decree, and it serves to delimit the whole range of possible worlds down to a proper subset of those worlds that would be feasible for God given the uh, conditional statements about what creatures would freely do that are true in these various worlds. So by his natural knowledge, he knows the full range of possible worlds. By his middle knowledge, he knows what worlds would be feasible for him to actualize given the um, subjunctive conditional statements that are true about how creatures would freely choose under various circumstances. And then on the basis of that, he issues a creative decree, chooses one of these feasible worlds, and then he has free knowledge of that world that he has chosen to create. Thanks. That was really helpful. Um, I've, you know this, but lots of people refer to these uh, subjunctive conditionals about um, what creatures would freely do as counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. And Molinism says, at least typical Molinists will say, not only does God have this kind of uh, middle knowledge of these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, but it's it's a very handy thing for him to have. It's providentially useful, say. Yes. Um, so could you say a little bit about how middle knowledge is supposed to be sort of providentially useful on the Molinist view? The reason that having this middle knowledge is so useful is that it makes the divine decree um, reckon with human freedom. Uh, he knows how creatures would freely choose. Uh, and so he's not just blindly creating a world. And then surprise, surprise, he sees what that world is and what's going to happen. Rather, he, he knows what the world will be like because he knew that if he were to create these creatures in these circumstances, they would freely choose to do such and such. And so by having middle knowledge, it can guide God in his created decree so that God creates a world of free creatures that 
fulfills his ultimate intentions for humanity, but it does so without abrogating human freedom. God's ultimate purposes are achieved through the human free decisions rather than in spite of or against them. And in general, um, it is admitted that apart from a doctrine of middle knowledge, it is impossible to give an account of divine providence that affirms both divine sovereignty and human libertarian freedom. Um, those who deny one or the other wind up either annihilating human freedom or else denying God's sovereignty. So even the opponents of middle knowledge admit that it is indeed essential to a robust doctrine of divine providence. Well, on that note, we, we've talked about on this podcast, Boethian solution, which is kind of like the timelessness solution and the Occamist view. Uh, Molinism, as you said, affirms divine foreknowledge is compatible with human free will, but it denies that free will is compatible with determinism. So do you think that Molinism has any advantages over these Boethian and Occamist views? Yes. Now, the Boethian view is that God is timeless. Mm -hmm. And so God timelessly sees the whole of human history from beginning to end. And that kind of knowledge um, really, I don't think it does anything to safeguard human freedom because whether God's knowledge is tucked away in the past and therefore temporally necessary, or whether it's held timelessly by God, in either case, it's unchangeable. And so if divine foreknowledge is incompatible with human freedom, so is divine timeless knowledge, because we couldn't do anything differently than God timelessly knows that we shall do. So I don't think it helps with that problem at all. And moreover, it does nothing, absolutely nothing to help with the doctrine of divine providence, because what God sees by his um, timeless vision of the world is only the actual world. Mm -hmm. He sees what was, what is, and what will be. But that doesn't afford him any ability to plan that world. He just finds it there in front of him, so to speak, and he's looking down on it from his timeless vantage point, but it doesn't give God any um, ability to determine that that should be the world that exists apart from a sort of divine determinism. And what advantage do you think it has over the Occamist view? Well, only that it gives more explanatory depth. I think the Occamist mm -hmm. view is entirely adequate for the reconciliation of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. What it says is that I have the ability to act differently than I shall act, but that if I were to act differently, then God would have foreknown that instead. So I am perfectly free to act as I wish. It's just that I can't escape God's knowing it. Um, whatever I choose to do, God will have foreknown that. Uh, and so I think that is a um, perfectly good solution to 
the problem of divine foreknowledge and human freedom, and the Molinist affirms exactly the same thing. The Molinist affirms that when the time comes of the foreknown event, I have the ability to act in such a way that if I were to act in that way, God would have had different mill knowledge than he in fact has. Um, and so that's entirely compatible with my acting differently. What Molinism does is it gives extra explanatory depth to the Occamist view by explaining that God knows not only what will happen, not only future contingents, but he knows what would happen under various circumstances. And this enables him then, as I say, to plan a world of free creatures whereby his purposes are ultimately achieved through the free decisions of those creatures. Nice. Well, I know that for a lot of theists, Molinism is kind of like the Holy Grail. Uh, it promises, as you said, to capture this uh, robust account of divine providence, but also to leave room for libertarian freedom. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's been a lot of discussions, critical discussions of Molinism about the status of uh, the middle knowledge of these counterfactuals of freedom and especially about how they're grounded, whether they're grounded, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but I guess for our purposes, the, the question, the objection that I wanted to get your thoughts on was whether Molinism is really offering anything um, over and above, say, the Occamist response to the, oh. the sort of threat from uh, divine foreknowledge. So this is something that Linda Zygzebski has yeah. brought up in her writing, and she brought up when we uh, interviewed her for our season one uh, episode on divine foreknowledge. She says Molinism is often seen as this kind of distinctive response to the the threat from divine, uh, yeah, from divine foreknowledge, but it uh, it doesn't really kind of target a premise um, of the argument for incompatibilism about free will and divine foreknowledge and show kind of where the argument goes wrong. Um, and this is something that John Fisher has brought up in some of his writings too. So I was wondering if you think that. Um, and what you were just saying about Occamism makes me think I already know the answer, but maybe maybe not. Um, do you think Molinism has something to offer that's distinctive in response to just the worry about divine foreknowledge as a potential threat to free will? No, I've argued against Alfred Fredoso, who is uh, the translator of Molina's On Divine Foreknowledge, that in fact, Molina and Occam's position is the same with respect to God's foreknowledge of future contingents. Namely, I have the ability to do differently than I shall do, and that if I were to do differently, then God would have foreknown that. And so I just don't see that there's any significant difference. Rather, the advantage of the Molinist perspective is that it gives so much more explanation of divine providence. Mm -hmm. And remember, that was the main burden of Molina, was to give an account of divine sovereignty and human freedom that would reconcile these two in a way that the reformers could not do. Well, if you anyone who's read the literature on Molinism knows that there there is not a lack of objections to Molinism. There, there are a lot of them. So which one do you think is the biggest challenge that makes you stop and think, well, that's actually a really good objection. And how would you respond to yeah. it? I do not think that there are any good objections to the doctrine of middle knowledge as such. But I do think there's a powerful objection to the Molinist account of divine providence, namely that it's too effective in explaining 
how God could control a world of free creatures without abridging their freedom. Namely, if there are an infinity of feasible worlds available to God, then the objector says all God would have to do is just tweak some of the small, irrelevant circumstances in those worlds, and then maybe in those worlds, creatures would behave differently. So perhaps in a world that was exactly like ours, but there was a motion in the galaxy Andromeda of a few molecules, then in that world, Peter would not have denied Christ three times, but would have freely affirmed him. And if it's possible for God to tweak the circumstances in that way so as to achieve whatever he wants, this wouldn't lead to a denial of Molinism or of God's knowledge of future contingents, but it would tend to um, eliminate the explanatory advantage of Molinism over uh, reformed views of unilateral divine determinism. It, it would ultimately mean that God wills and wants there to be a world involving human sin and moral evil and all of the rest, that this is really part of God's decree. Uh, it's not something that he merely permits, it's something that he decrees to happen. And, and so the important distinction between what God directly wills or absolutely wills to happen and what he permissively wills to happen would seem to collapse. So I think that's a very important objection that needs to be addressed. Yeah. What Give us a gloss on how you th think the best way to respond to that objection. I have responded to this in print. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> where. You caught me off, off guard here. Um, I argue that um, the only events that would be relevant to a creature's free decision would be events that are in or on the past light cone of a space-time event. The, the past light cone is all those events that can have a causal connection with the event in question. Uh, and it would seem to me that if God were to tweak something in the galaxy Andromeda that is outside the past light cone of the agent at the time and place that is just irrelevant to how he would decide. And evidence for this would be to ask the person, would you decide differently if the molecules in Andromeda were slightly shifted to the left? And he'd say, of course not. Now, if that's the case, then given the finitude of the past, that means that there are only a finite number of events in the light cone uh, to reckon with. And given that God wants to plan a, a world of free creatures that will go on forever, um, it seems to me that the amount of tweaking that would be available to him may not at all be adequate to get what he wants, uh, especially when you consider that he's got to have all of these creatures um, arranged in a compossible world uh, so that his ultimate purposes are achieved through their free decisions. It's not at all clear, I think, 
that it would be within God's capacity to um, do this kind of tweaking that the objector envisions. If I could ask one follow-up question to something you were saying earlier, and this is this was not scripted, so we can cut this if you'd like. <laughs> you could tell us afterwards. Um, but given what you said about the Occamist response, it, it got me thinking, well, a lot of the recent discussion of Occamism has sort of centered around whether there can be a good criterion for what counts as a soft a soft fact about the past, right? So part of the Occamist response to the, the threat from divine foreknowledge is, well, God's foreknowledge, um, including his beliefs about the you know future uh, free human actions, those aren't really, at least not all the way about the past, right? Facts about God's um, foreknowledge, they're, they're partly about what's to come and including um, how we'll act. And so they shouldn't be held fixed when we're assessing what human beings are free to do now. Um, one proposed criterion has to do with entailment, but it seems like that might be too mm -hmm. weak of a criterion for something's counting as a soft fact. It might be that um, certain things entail things about the future and also they're still hard bits of the past that are really over and done with. So I'm wondering if you don't have to go into this if you don't want to, but I'm wondering if you think maybe that criterion can work or maybe there's an alternative for what makes something a soft fact. I've discussed this extensively in a book that you did not mention called Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom, published by E.J. E. Brill. This is my scholarly treatment of the subject of divine foreknowledge. Uh, and in it, I have an extensive discussion of hard facts and soft facts and temporal or so-called accidental necessity. And it seems to me that given divine foreknowledge of future contingents, um, their uh, temporal necessity just doesn't amount to very much. That um, the softness of a fact about the past is just a de facto condition uh, about whether or not um, it's counterfactually dependent upon a free decision that I make. Uh, a fact would be hard if no matter how I chose, um, that wouldn't affect what God would have done in the past. Um, he, he would still have done certain things in the past, even were I to choose differently. But that's just a de facto situation. Uh, God could choose to do differently uh, if I were to choose differently. So take typical examples of things that people think are hard facts, like Isaiah's um, prophesying the um, exile of Israel, um, or uh, Daniel's prophecy of the uh, Persian kingdom. Um, I would say that those are not hard facts about the past, that if certain um, free agents were to do differently, then Isaiah would not have made that prophecy, and Daniel would not have made that prophecy. Or take God's promises to do something. Those might seem like hard facts, but I would say that if we were to do differently, then it may well be the case God would not have made those promises. So I, I think that um, there are there's potentially all kinds of historical events that just are not hard or temporally necessary in that way, given um, 
divine foreknowledge of future contingents, um, I don't think that the hardness of the past or the temporal necessity of the past really amounts to much of anything. Interesting. One of the um, uh, examples that comes up in recent literature, I think Patrick Todd has written a bunch of papers using this example, but um, you might contrast God's knowledge or even God's promises with um, something like a divine decree, a sort of unilateral decree that something will happen in the future. Uh -huh. And maybe you could even assume that that decree invo involves a kind of deter causal determination of the future events. And you might think, well, you still have the same kind of counterfactual dependence uh, at play. If I were to do differently, right, then God would have had to have <laughs> decreed differently. Right. So I, I, I could see someone pushing back and saying, well, you got to have something stronger than counterfactual dependence to get um, a kind of robust freedom. Oh, I don't think so. What it would just imply is that the decree is not a hard fact about the past. Oh, okay. It, it's a historical fact, just like Isaiah's prophecy being given, but it's not a hard fact. It's not temporally necessary. I could still act in such a way that God would not have decreed, as he in fact did decree. So I just don't think that temporal necessity amounts to very much. What, what's at issue here are so-called backtracking counterfactuals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where if I were to do something, then something about the past would have been different. Uh, for example, uh, a sort of frivolous illustration would be somebody might say, if you were on the 32nd floor of the skyscraper, uh, if you were to jump out of the window, would you die? And you might say, well, no, because if I were to jump out of the window, I would have placed a net outside to catch me. <laughs> and that would be a backtracking counterfactual that, that if I were to do this, then something about the past would have been different. Uh, and while that those kind of backtracking counterfactuals are not very plausible for human uh, situations, with a God who has foreknowledge of the future, well, you could have all kinds of backtracking counterfactuals of that sort. Yeah, that's interesting. So that suggests that, that it, it is really that it's God and its knowledge of the future that God has that plays a special role here. I, I was going to ask again about the difference between uh, divine foreknowledge and causal determinism, because I could imagine someone saying, well, causal determinism doesn't rule out free will. We should be compatibilists instead of libertarians, because, look, were I to decide differently or were I to want to decide differently, like the past would have been different. And that's consistent. You know, you could say that I have a kind of free will, even though the past and the laws, you know, determine a unique future. Yeah, I, I don't think that that works at all. If you're causally determined um, to do something, you, you'd have to have some sort of a backtracking counterfactual there that would not be justified, I think, to assert the truth of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that would be very similar to the net outside the window example. Mm -hmm. when, when I have discussed Molinism with people, uh, we mentioned this earlier about the, the problem of how counterfactuals are grounded, the, the so-called grounding objection. Yes. Um, a, a lot of people think that this is a knockdown kind of objection to Molinism because you have no way for God to know something because it's not grounded in anything. Um, could you explain what the grounding objection is and 
how it's a problem for Molinism. Yes. Now, as I understand the objection, it's different than what you just said. It's not that Mm -hmm. God couldn't know them. Uh, It's rather that in the absence of some sort of ground for their truth, these propositions wouldn't be true. In other words, this is a radical denial that there are counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. Um, And it seems to me that this view is both implausible as well as unbiblical because scripture contains counterfactuals of creaturely freedom um, in it. And I don't think we want to say that these are truth value gaps in scripture, that these propositions are uh, have no truth value or much worse that these are actually false. So the question is, in order for these propositions to be true, do they have to be grounded in this particular way? Well, as I've explained in my article on the grounding objection, um, there seems to be a theory of truth that is being uncritically presupposed by grounding objections, uh, objectors, which is called truth maker theory, uh, namely that every truth has to have a truth maker. Um, And as Alvin Plantinga has said, I'm just far more confident that there are true counterfactuals of freedom than I am the truth maker theory is (laughs) true. Um, Moreover, it's not enough to have truth maker theory. You've got to have what's called truth maker maximalism. That is to say that every true proposition has a truth maker. And that is not affirmed even by most truth-maker theorists. Uh, they, they recognize that there are propositions that lack truth-makers. Uh, for example, negative existential propositions like Baal does not exist. What would be the truth-maker of that proposition that Baal does not exist? Uh, you can't say, well, it's just the absence of um something that it's just that there's nothing there because that would be the same truth maker for the proposition Thor does not exist. So it's very plausible that uh, there are propositions that are true without having truth makers. And I think that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom would be a prime example of these kinds of truths because the antecedents are not realized. Um, They're often not true. They're counterfactual. So I don't see any reason to think that this kind of truth maker maximalism is true and that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom to be true have to be grounded in this peculiar way. I've seen some of your work on truth and you have an alternative theory of truth that you've defended. Did did you uh, could you explain what this theory is and did you uh, like the you call it the the deflationary view? Um, Yes, this is a quite different subject now Mm -hmm. that is not related to the grounding objection or Molinism. I was going to ask if there was a relation between uh, your work on the counterfactuals and the grounding objection and whether or not that influenced you in in adopting the deflationary. It it did not influence me, though I suppose it could um, be related. It was rather a consequence of my work on divine aseity. Mm. I believe that the Bible teaches that God is the only uncreated being. 
He is, as Brian Leftow puts it, the sole ultimate reality. Everything apart from God has been created by God. And that means that there are not uncreated abstract objects like possible worlds, propositions, properties, and other sorts of abstracta. So um, what do you do then with uh, propositions that seem to be true, um, even though there are no human beings to conceive them? For example, like um, the Tyrannosaurus Rex is eating the trachodon at the side of the lake. That Wasn't that true during the Jurassic period at some point, even though there was no one to conceive that proposition? And if it was true, it, it couldn't be a linguistic statement. It would have to be some sort of abstract object that existed uh, and that was true at that time. And so in response to this, I have uh, adopted what's called a deflationary view of truth, which holds that um, you do not really need truth as a substantive property in order to affirm certain things. Um, rather than saying that it was true in the Jurassic period that the Tyrannosaurus was eating the Trachodon, you just assert it. During the Jurassic period, the Tyrannosaurus was eating the Trachodon by the lakeside. Um, when you speak of truth, you are semantically ascending and you're no longer talking about the Tyrannosaurus, you're talking about the proposition and ascribing truth to that proposition. And there's no real need to ascend semantically in that way. For any proposition that is talking about the truth of something, you can descend semantically and just assert the proposition that is said to be true. So talk of truth is really only just a useful device for finite human beings who need to make what are called blind truth ascriptions, where we cannot say exactly uh, the things that we believe to be true. For example, if I say uh, all of the statements in the top secret CIA document are true, you see, I can't assert them because I don't know what's in them what's in the documents. So I can't just assert them. So in this case, by semantically ascending, I can affirm that the statements in the document are true. Uh, or if I say um, that everything that the Pope has ever believed is true, there I can't enumerate all the things that the Popes have believed over the years. And so I ascend semantically and, and talk about these things and ascribe truth to them. But for an omniscient being like God, you see, there would be no need for a semantic ascent because he does know all of the statements in the top secret documents, and he does know everything that the Pope has believed and so could simply assert those. So these blind truth ascriptions are simply a useful semantic device for finite and limited human beings like us, but we don't really need truth as a substantive property. Um, we just make the assertion. 
I hope that's clear. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I mean, that actually is going to set up our discussion in, in our next episode, mm -hmm. which will talk about truth to some extent. So that's really helpful. Oh. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Bill. Um, we've mentioned some books and other resources already, but where would you point listeners uh, to go if they want to follow more of your work? Well, it would mainly be our website. Um, it is chock full with thousands and thousands of pages of material, including my published articles, a weekly column that I write called Question of the Week. Um, we have an open forum. Um, we also have three YouTube channels that have videos of debates and lectures and interviews. So all of this material is available through the website reasonablefaith.org and it's all free of charge. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.